Well, good morning. How are we? Good. You guys, excuse me, I'm getting over a little bit of a cold today, so you might hear a, a few coughs into the mic. Hey, a uh, little family business before we move forward. I've been really, really excited to get into God's Word with you this week because uh, it is a rich passage. Sometimes I have to say, hey, tough things. Here's what God's Word says. Today, I just get to declare to you one of the, just some of the best, most courage-producing truth uh, in our Word. So, but before we go there, let me remind you guys, I announced last week, and then you got an email this week, if you're on our church email, about the offering that we're gonna take up next week to finish out that Pave the Way campaign. So we're 121,000 short, right around there, uh, from finishing out that maintenance building and uh, storage facility. Really do just wanna remind you and encourage you to be praying about that. It's part of us being good stewards of our property, and we believe being able to make our home base more effective at reaching people for Jesus. So if you would, just continue to prayerfully consider that. We'll take an offering next week, and you can continue to give online. So if you got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're gonna touch on the very last part of chapter 4, all right? Now, while you're turning there, let me remind you guys, when we come together on Sunday mornings, I was reminded again uh, as a pastor, as your pastor, uh, again this week, of just how important it is for us to get God's Word into your hand. Our ambition is not that you would come here and go, wow, aren't the pastors here really good at explaining God's Word? Our ambition is that you would come here and that we would, as a part of what we're doing here, not just explain what God's Word has to say to you, but also help you gain good interpretive biblical skills so that you understand how to read and interpret God's Word for yourselves and not have to depend upon other folks to do that for you. The reason I think that's so pivotally important is because we know that all week, every week, you guys are out there every day sort of um, with the culture of the day washing up against you and attempting to convince you that things that it believes are true are true when in fact they are not true. And the only way to, to be reminded of what is actually true is to know how to interpret God's Word and explain it and understand it and comprehend it and then stand on it. And so I'm just reminded there are often folks that are held in high esteem as teachers of God's word that are increasingly moving away from God's word and its authority on a number of different issues. And um, I, I just, every time I see that, my heart breaks a little bit and it reminds me as your pastor how pivotally important it is for us to help you know what God's word says. And not just, friends, not just so that you can be, you know, really proud of your own piousness and doctrinal correctness, not for that but so that your heart would break for the world we live in and that you would want to see people redeemed in the name of Jesus and you'd be more effective at helping that take place. You know, people who are real pious about their own doctrinal purity are Pharisees. They don't have the heart of God. It's people who are not just familiar with God's word, but who love God and submit to the authority of his word that then become broken for the things of God and care about the people around them and engage their culture for the good of their city where God has placed them with tenderness and graciousness and humility and also authority. So we wanna encourage you in that way. I was reminded of that again this week and I pray, and if you would, continue to pray for our church that we would be a place where we stand on God's word, submit to its authority, and hopefully teach it very faithfully. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter five. Before we read, let's pray. Father, your word is rich and it's just full, full of truth that we need. And today, Lord, you know that this truth is beyond comprehension. We have finite minds and this is infinite truth. And we pray that you would cause us to see it for what it is and give us capacity beyond what we believe we could have to understand your word 
and to, be, to have courage built in, into us through it, Father. And let it have its way with us. We thank you for the truth that we get to meditate on today. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, let's read together. I wanna to begin at the last part of chapter four in verse 16 and read through verse 10 of chapter five. So just follow along with me. If you didn't bring your Bible, we'll throw it up on the screen for you. It says this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that a good phrase? So what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. <coughs> now you notice, as we read through that, three different times in verse 16 of chapter 4, and then again in verses 6 and 8 of chapter 5, you found this phrase, well, in, in verse 16 it said, Let, we do not lose heart, and then it said, therefore we have courage, uh, or so we are of good courage in, chapter, in verses 6 and verses 8 of chapter 5. So what that tells us is that this section of text is all about Paul telling us, here's what you need to have courage in the face of great difficulty. He's wanting to impart to you and to I, to the Corinthians, something that will make us courageous in the face of great difficulty. Now let's just backtrack a little bit to get our context because if you remember, at the beginning of chapter four, what we said was that Paul is essentially trying to convince us that God desires and longs for us to be made glorious, not for our own glory and goodness, but so that we would reflect his glory and goodness. And you remember this phrase from verse six of chapter four when he said this. Let me flip back to it so I read it to you. It says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying there is this. He's saying it is through Jesus Christ that God's glory is revealed to you. And if you remember what we said is what is the glory of God? That's kind of a churchy, nebulous sort of a term. When we refer to the glory of God, what we're saying is the visible manifestation of his goodness, of his nature. Wherever his nature is made visible, that's what his glory is. It's the visible, uh, visible ability to see who God is in his nature. And so he, what he's saying is that glory, the goodness of God is revealed first and foremost, in Jesus Christ. This is in the face of Jesus Christ here in verse six. But then he goes on to say, I want you to have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the light of the knowledge is when you come to know God through Jesus Christ, there is work done in you that is akin to light, goodness, truth, wholeness, 
fullness. There is a sense of life as it was intended to be lived that comes into a life when that life comes in contact with Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is you are to be made glorious by coming in contact with God through Jesus Christ. That's what the beginning of chapter 4 was. So he says God is intentioned upon making you glorious as he is glorious. And then the end of chapter 4, as Nate so uh, dutifully and well unpacked for us last week, was this. He says, not only does he intend to make you glorious, here's how he does it. And the answer to how he does it was found in, at the end of chapter 4, and it was not a pleasant answer, but it was this. He makes you glorious through suffering, through difficulty. When you suffer for the sake of righteousness, when you suffer for the sake of the gospel, it makes you glorious. Remember what he said, and we just read it in verse 17. Now he says, there's many ways that you're made courageous as you go through persecution, but this is probably the chief way when he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now there are a lot of rich texts in the scriptures about suffering and persecution. This may be the richest, okay? Not to compare, but Romans 8, right here, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, because do you get what he's saying, church? Friends, do you get what he's saying? He's saying that he's not making light of your difficulty. He's not making light of your cancer, light of your disability, light of the struggles that you face physically in this world. He's not making light of those things. But what he is saying is that what is yet to come is so good that you will look back upon that thing and go, that was light and momentary. Do the the burdens you face physically feel light and momentary right now? Probably not so much. But this is the promise of God to us that no matter how difficult they are or feel now in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, which those very things produce in you, it's not that there's just glory waiting for you. It's that glory is being produced in you through those sufferings. If you want to endure persecution and hardship and difficulty in your life and, and stay in the faith and stay in the fight, then you've got to believe that those difficulties are producing something profound in you, something eternal in you. And that's what he's saying. Suffering produces an eternal weight of glory. So beginning of chapter four, what is God's desire? That you would be glorious. End of chapter four, how does he do that? by bringing suffering into your life so that you might have an eternal weight of glory produced in you. Now, chapter five, he's gonna carry the idea even further because what he's gonna say to us is, should suffering produce its ultimate end, which is death? Should you even go to that place? There is something so good waiting for you on the other side of death that you will find yourself longing for it and groaning for it while you're in this body. (coughs) Again, excuse me. So what does he want for us? How is it done? And then what does it actually look like? That's what we're gonna learn today. What is it? What is it that is this eternal weight of glory that is being produced in us that we will experience one day? So you ready? All right, let's go. Let's look at verse one of chapter five because here's what he says first. I wanna give you three truths today from this, from just verses one through 10, three truths that can make you courageous even in the face of death. And in verse one, he says this, he says, for we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about our physical death. He's gonna mix metaphors. So just let me prepare you because it can be a little confusing. He's gonna mix metaphors and he's gonna say, 
gonna talk about a tent and a building, and then he's gonna talk about being clothed and being unclothed. You may have noticed that as we read, and you might be thinking, what on earth is he talking about? Well, in both situations, what he's talking about is the first truth that makes us courageous when it comes to, or courageous even in the face of death, and it's this. When we die, we will receive a resurrection body. When we die, we will receive a resurrection body. Now, you may think, okay, heard that before, been around church. Maybe you haven't been around church. You've never heard that before, and it sounds odd to you. I wanna explain it a little bit further. But here's what I want you to understand. This is what he intends to use to make us courageous. So we really need to grapple with and wrestle with and comprehend what is this resurrection body that he's talking about, where he's saying if the tent, which he's referring to our bodies now, if the tent that is our home now is destroyed, we have a building from God which is eternal. It's not made by human hands, and it's eternal in the heavens. So here's the idea of the resurrection body, because in verses 1 through 5, that's pretty much all he's talking about. Now, he's mixing metaphors, which I mentioned. What is a resurrection body? Here's what you need to know. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised not just in spirit, but he was raised physically from the dead. He was raised bodily from the dead. And because he was, we believe that we will also be raised bodily from the dead. That means that we will receive someday resurrection bodies, and we don't know exactly what they will be like, but we know a few things about them. And one of the things we do know is it's a physical body we will receive. We will live all eternity in those physical bodies, and they will be modeled after Jesus' resurrection bodies which is pretty cool when you think about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, still had the scars and wounds from his crucifixion, and yet was able to do things like eat and enjoy and yet walk through walls. So there's some stuff that we don't exactly understand about how the resurrection body is going to work, but what we do know is it's going to be profound. Perhaps the greatest, most courage-producing truth about the resurrection body is this, is that it will not wear out. Now, If you're like 22 and I just said that, you're like, oh, cool. But if you're 82 and I just said that, how good is that? That you will receive a body. Our bodies are decaying and dying slowly, but surely in the first service I said I'm 40 and all the people older than me groaned like, whatever, you don't even know. And all the people under me said, oh my goodness, he's that old? Because when I get my hair cut, the gray goes away a little bit and then everybody thinks I'm young, but I'm not, I'm old. Same groan every time. I don't know where to classify myself, so just give me grace. So here's the deal. We will receive resurrection bodies that do not wear out. This is how he said it in verse 1 when he said, let me find my spot. We receive a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, do you know how he says it? He says, you will sow into the ground something that is perishable, and you will reap out of the ground something that is imperishable. The greatest description of the resurrection body, the fullest, which you don't have time to go into all of, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you want to just, you know, notch down a note today to go back and look at that, great, brilliant description. Both that idea of the perishable being sown and the imperishable being reaped or raised, and this idea of it being eternal in the heavens, this building from God, are both applying, are both simply saying the same thing. They're saying that this body will not wear out. Now, honestly, if you're young, what you need to do is you need to go plant yourself next to someone who's old. And you need to just ask them to tell, and they will, tell you about all their ailments. Okay? Now, here's the deal. If you're old, when you tell them about your ailments, you are totally allowed to do that. We want you to do that. But we want you to follow it with, and I've got something better waiting for me. 
Because if you spend all your time just complaining about your ailments and how you feel without saying, but there's something coming, then all we're pointing to is the fact that we're gonna get old and it's gonna hurt. But we need to know that we're gonna get old and it's gonna hurt and then there will be something more glorious. That's what we need. Because as we age, as we get old, as we deal with infirmity or disability, whether we may be young and dealing with disability and infirmity, and as we deal with that, we need to be pointed to the reality that we don't have to be afraid of that because there is a resurrection body which is waiting for us. Now, here's the deal. When you think about your resurrection body, I don't want you to think about like, all the fun things that you'll be able to do again, like when you were young, like, oh, I can maybe dunk a basketball again. That's definitely on my list. But, um, oh, I'll be able to, that's silliness. And it comes far low of understanding what it is you're going to receive because you need to understand that when you receive your resurrection body, it's not just going to be a qualitatively different body. It's going to be so profoundly different, so profoundly uh, eternal that you will see colors and taste tastes and you will hear things the way they were meant to be heard, the way they were meant to be seen, as if you are seeing for the first time. That's how good the resurrection body will be. You will see color and you will go, that's what that color was always meant to look like. I saw some dingy version of it with this body. Now I know what you mean when you say red. Now I know what you mean when you play beautiful music, what a beautiful sound sounds like. I never heard before. I thought I heard. I've never heard. This is what hearing is. This is what seeing is. This is what you will touch for the first time. That's what it will feel like. This existence is a shadow of the glorious body you will live your eternity in. And if that doesn't give you some courage, make you want to say, hallelujah, I don't know what will. Now, friends, listen to this, okay? Not only is the resurrection body courage-producing and inducing, but look at what he says in verses two through four, because he's gonna make this argument. The promise of a resurrection body is so good that it makes us want Jesus to come back before we die. Now you might think, wait, what? Because this is gonna challenge you, because the reality is, how many of us, if we're honest within ourselves, think to ourselves, I'm not sure I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I might want him to wait a little bit until I get married or until I have some kids or until I get the promotion at work or until I get to marry off my daughters or whatever. You've got your ambitions in this life. And if you're honest, those things, you might want to see them happen before you see Jesus come back. And Paul's gonna say, oh, no, 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 no. I want Jesus and I want him now. Nothing is better than Jesus' return. Look at how he says it in verses two through four. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. In other words, it's so good that I'm groaning, I'm longing for what will come. (coughs) If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Okay, pause there. What's he talking about? What does it mean to not be found naked? In what senses does he mean naked? What he's saying is essentially this, okay? There's some amount of debate about when we will receive our resurrection body. And it's, you know, good theologians, sharp biblical interpreters have honest disagreement on this. I think the biblical weight is on one side of this argument. The question is, will we receive our resurrection bodies when we die immediately? You die, you receive your resurrection body, and you begin your eternal existence in that resurrection body at that point. Or will we receive it when Jesus returns? So that in other words, there would be a period where if I were to die today and go into heaven, I would live without my resurrection body for a while as a soul. And we'll see here in verses six through eight that I'll still be in the presence of God, but I'll be there without a resurrection body. And that when Jesus returns, he will then bring my resurrection body to me 
my soul will meet my resurrection body and then I will begin to live forever in my resurrection body. I think the evidence is on the side of the latter, that we will receive our resurrection body not immediately upon death, but when Jesus returns. And that's what I think Paul is talking about here. When he says, I don't want to be naked in verse four, he says, I don't wanna be unclothed, but further clothed. In other words, what he's saying is, if I die and put off this tent, this building, if I were to die, then what I would do is I would live between now, the day of my death, and Jesus' return as a disembodied soul in the presence of God. And the resurrection body, the promise of that body, is so sweet and so good that my desire is not to sort of live a long life and slip into death at some point quietly. My desire is that Jesus would come back today, now, so that I wouldn't have to die first. I want my resurrection body when Jesus returns. If he returns before I die, I get it right away. Paul's saying, this is how good it is. I want it now. Now, if you want to follow the order of priority, here's what he's saying. If I got my choice, Paul is saying, I would choose for God to come back today and I would be present with the Lord and I would receive my resurrection body and what is mortal would be swallowed up by life. In other words, what he's saying is when we receive our resurrection bodies, and he writes this in Romans chapter 8 too, by the way, this is all creation, which we are the pinnacle of, looks at us and longs for us to receive these glorified resurrection bodies because they know when we receive it, they will be remade and renewed as they were always intended to be. So when Paul uses that phrase, so that what is mortal would be swallowed up by life, what he's saying is, when our mortal bodies are swallowed up by life and we receive resurrection bodies, the rest of creation follows suit and everything will be renewed. And that is the day he is longing for. And it's the day of Jesus' return. That's what he wants. That's his first priority. Now, if he can't have that because God determines the time of the son's return, Paul knows he does not. He says, if I can't have that, then I would rather die and depart and be with God. And even though I don't have my resurrection body, I'm still with God. That's still better. And third, we hear in Philippians chapter one when he writes about this. Third, if I can't have either of those things, I'll stay on here in this life and serve God. But that's really my third choice. My first two choices are the other things that I mentioned. Now, is that a little challenging for us? Because how often do we think, you know, I think I'd really, I would, it'd be great if you'd return or if I could go into the presence of God, but I really would like to kind of do these things first. And what Paul is saying is like, no, 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 you have misunderstood the greatness and the gloriousness of what is waiting for you. And he's trying to compel us and say, this is better. By the way, one of the other reasons he delights that the idea of Jesus coming back and him receiving his resurrection body is because he recognizes death is not something to be longed for. He's not saying long for death, long for what comes after death, but don't long for death because death is the result of sin. Death exists because the devil has had his day and he doesn't delight in death. And he doesn't want death. He doesn't long for death. He longs for death to be swallowed up by life. And so one of the great things he's thinking is Jesus I don't even want the Satan to get the little satisfaction that he gets from that moment of my death where he goes, yeah, that's my work, I did that. Even though it leads to eternity on the other side, I don't want Satan to even get that satisfaction. If you would come back today, that would mean I don't even have to give Satan the satisfaction of my death. And you get the glory. And what is mortal is swallowed up by life. You guys with me, you follow? So that's the first courage-producing truth that he's meaning to pour into us so that we would be reminded of how good what is waiting for us is. Now, let me say this before we move on to the next one. 
If you are, and I know every week, lots of, lots of you came with maybe a friend and you're kind of checking out church, maybe for the first time or first time in a long time, you might be thinking, I'm pretty skeptical about this whole thing called Christianity. And that's totally fair, by the way. We're so glad that you're here to ask those tough questions. So when I start talking about an eternal existence that is gonna be in this resurrection glorified body, let's be honest, that's weird. And you're thinking, what on earth is this dude talking about? You might already be like, can we leave now? Let me just propose something, okay? Let me throw something out there for you because I recognize how strange it sounds. But let's consider the alternatives, okay? Because let's just do a little bit of like cost-benefit analysis here for a second, right? Let's think, think it through. There's a couple of different prevalent views when it comes to death and what the eternal state will be like, right? So you've got the Christian view, which is that we will have resurrected bodies. We believe that, right? There's another view called reincarnation, right? If you follow Hinduism, there's this idea that based upon how you live in this life, you'll either be sort of recycled into a better, higher order of being or into a lower order of being, and you'll do that perpetually until you reach some sort of release into nirvana. So that's, that's another view of eternity and what could take place. Perhaps another one is just, I think this is the most common prevalent one, is the idea that, yeah, I think our souls go on, but I'm not exactly sure how or when or what it looks like. I mean, there's just sort of this ambiguous spiritual life that's, that's beyond this life. That's probably the most common one. In fact, I was watching a television show this week and the main character, some kids asked the question like, what happens after we die? And you could tell the writers were having, they wanted this main character to have to just wrestle with the idea of death. And he just kind of hemmed and hawed for a little while and said, ah, you know, good people and spirits. And I think, yeah, something like that. And, and they were trying to convey the tension and the reality of the challenge of understanding what happens after death. That's fair. They did a good job of conveying the tension of that, right? I think that's a pretty common view. We're not real sure, but it's spiritual of some sort. And then there's the idea that maybe nothing happens after this life. Like if you're a naturalist, a materialist, all that we have is the synapses in our brain and the central, you know, just the physical bodies that we possess. That's really it. And after that, it goes in the ground and, and we're done. All of those views, I, I don't have time to sort of go through each one, but let me just offer this, at least from a Christian perspective. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Church, you know that? It's the linchpin, right? And if Jesus was bodily resurrected from the grave, then let me argue that it, it just makes sense that we would believe that we also will be bodily resurrected because we're gonna be remade in his image. So if he was raised from the grave bodily, it's not a big stretch to believe that we could also be raised bodily from the grave. It also sort of debunks those other ideas. If Jesus was resurrected, then the materialist view that nothing happens after this life has really been disproven because if Jesus is raised and then has ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, if that's taken place, then there is life after death, right? There's life after death. And so the materialist idea that nothing happens after death might be, you know, kind of shaken by that idea of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why as Christians, we put so much stock, so much weight in a discussion of what the resurrection is. So, challenge I might put in front of you if you're, if you're thinking these things through and processing them through. Do it with your friends. Do it in good company. We're so glad to do that with you. The evidence, we would, in fact, many of us have come to believe this. One of the reasons we believe our faith is reasonable, logical, is that the evidence in favor of the resurrection, while we can't prove it, can't prove to you that Jesus was raised from the dead, but the evidence in favor of it is so much stronger than the evidence against it. And when you really do the his history of it, you really look into it. Let me give you two resources if you want to look a little further into this, if you're kind of examining, that might be helpful to you. A book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. You don't have to read the whole book. You can read chapter 13. I'd recommend the whole book. It's a great book. Chapter 13 on evidence for the resurrection. And then if you want to get a little meatier, if you want to go a little further than what that one chapter will do, great book by William Lane Craig. Let me make sure I get the title right. 
William Lane Craig's The Sun Rises, historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. All right? Number one, courage producing truth is that we will receive resurrected bodies. Number two, number two is this, it's simple, is that we will be with God. Look at verses six through eight. They say this, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So I already touched on Paul's priorities. That's what he's talking about there when he says, look, I'd rather be at home with the Lord and away from this body, which is temporary and not permanent. I'd rather that be the case. But one of the things we need to make sure we understand just quickly is that he's saying to be absent from the body is to be present where? With the Lord. So for everyone who is in Christ, who has made that decision, there is not going to be a period where you will die and then you'll go through limbo or purgatory or some other you know, space where you're kind of, I don't know, making up for some, some of your bad decisions in this life or whatever it may be. You will depart from this life and you will be immediately present with the Lord. Now this is friends, church. If, if you want to have courage in the face of death and courage in the trials and tribulations of this life, then you have got to make great effort to begin to bend your heart around the things of God so that you delight at the idea of being with him more than you delight in any other thing. You have got to begin to put away the things of the world and anything that sort of calls your allegiances and your affection, anything that causes your affections to rise for the things of this world which are temporary and transient, anything that does that needs to be put away and anything that causes you to have your affections stoked, that fire grown for the things of God. Because there is no greater truth to produce courage in you than to believe that when you die, you will be with God. He is your reward. I looked up last night, I, was, I, I Googled, how close can you get to the sun before you burn up? Now we're about 93, I know, I Google weird things, but it's all right. So do you if you admit it. We're about 93 million miles away from the sun. 93 million miles away from the sun. Do you know how close you can get before you, and this is like without a spaceship or anything like that. If you're just out there, you by yourself, unprotected, unguarded, how close do you think you can get? The answer is three million miles. Now, compared to 93 million, that sounds pretty good, but y'all, that's still three million miles away. God, whose glory and power and goodness is brighter than 10,000 suns, invites you into his presence two feet away. Come, dwell with me for all eternity. Jesus Christ has has gifted you the righteousness required to stand in the heat of the glory of our God. You can't even get three million, within three million miles of our stinking sun. Our God is brighter than 10,000 of our sons. And he says, come, come. Now, it, does that shape your view of what happened at the cross? Because he has gifted you a righteousness that enables you. It's your, it's your heat shield, so to speak. Come and be with God. Come and be in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, let's look at our last one. Last truth in this text, verses 9 and 10, is this. is We will be judged. Now, you might say, whoa, whoa wait a minute. That is not courage-producing. That's fear-inducing. 
right? I mean, we live in a, that's probably the Bible verse that a lot of people like that don't know the Bible all would say, I know that one, judge not lest she be judged, right? That's like the popular one that we all know. Like judgment sounds bad. It sounds like something we don't wanna do. But I'm telling you that according to this, the fact that you will be judged by God is actually courage producing, not just fear inducing. Let me tell you why. Look at verses nine and 10 again. He says this. He says, so whether we are at home or away, so in other words, whether we're at home with the Lord or away in the bodies we have now, we make it our aim to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, now flip over. We're gonna put it on the screen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because there's a really good text there about in verses 12 through 15 about what this judgment will be like. Because if he's saying we're all gonna be judged, everyone, believer, unbeliever alike, everybody stands before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, what does that mean? How, and he says here, we're gonna be judged for our works, for what we have done in this life. And yet as Christians, we tell ourselves all the time that we will only be judged, right? We will only be judged for our entrance into eternity in the presence of God based on what we've done with Jesus. Have we believed or have we not believed? Here's what 1 Corinthians chapter three says, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, the foundation in this context is Jesus himself. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. In other words, it will become clear. For the day will disclose it. That's the day of Jesus' return. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, this is key, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be what? Saved, but only as through fire. So a couple things. This is talking about the same judgment here in 1 Corinthians as being talked about the same one in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9, and 10, right? This judgment of our works, of the things that we do. Notice a couple things here. He says that regardless of what happens in that judgment of works, the person who goes through it will be what? Will be saved. In other words, their salvation was not dependent on what they did and their works being judged. Did my good works outweigh my bad works? If so, then I get in. If not, then I don't get in. He's saying, no, no, this is not for your eternal salvation, your entrance into the presence of God. That's taken care of. That's done. And all that matters is whether or not you have taken Jesus Christ's offer of eternal life by believing in him and what he has done. But there is yet another judgment to come for all those of us who believe in Jesus. And it's a judgment of our works what we have done, how have we used our time, our talents, our treasure, what have we done with it? Have we built wisely upon the foundation of Jesus Christ or have we built foolishly? Have we loved things other than God and spent our time and energy and money and all our talents and gifts, have we spent it all on things that are frivolous or have we spent our time on the things that matter, that build into eternity? So it's not based upon our works, our salvation, but there is a judgment of our works. A couple of things I want you to know and make sure you understand is because most of us have probably thought, okay, I'll receive reward based upon what I've done in this life. And that is true. That's what this text is teaching us. You will receive a reward based upon what you've done. If you've built wisely and well, spent your time on eternal things, you will become rich in eternity. And that fuel, that that 
reward will become fuel for the worship of Jesus Christ. You will be well equipped for your chief activity in eternity. You will have more to put at the feet of Jesus and say you are glorious. That's what those rewards exist for. That's why they're there. Now, the other thing, because you might ask, well, if I'm already in, and that's kind of the point, isn't it? Just to kind of get in. If I'm in, does it really matter whether I receive a reward? And the other thing I want you to know, I don't know exactly what this looks like. It's a profound mystery to some degree. But what we're being told here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is it will be possible to be in the presence of God and experience a sense of loss. Did you catch that? We will suffer loss if our works are burned up in the judgment. That's what he's telling us here. So friends, now you might think, okay, so that's a little scary. Makes me think, okay, what about the things I've done that were kind of a, the metaphor of wood, hay, and stubble? It was, what if I was building with the wrong materials and not spending my, my life on the things that matter? What if I was doing that? then am I gonna just eternally have this sense of loss? His point is not to frighten you. It's to, one, declare to you what is really going to happen, right? Wouldn't you rather know what's really gonna happen versus have some false notion of what's gonna take place after you die? So he's saying, this is what will happen. You will be judged according to your works for reward, and those rewards will be treasured to throw at the feet of Jesus. But here's how that's courage-inducing in this life. When you face persecution and difficulty, when you face even death, if you believe that by what you do in this life, you are storing up treasure in heaven for yourself that will make you rich in the, in the currency of eternity, then you can endure anything because you recognize that why would I want to build up any kind of equity or, or wealth here when I can store it away there? And so the way that this idea of judgment makes us courageous is it causes us to look beyond this life and into the next one and causes us to see, okay, there's something more important and more profound that's going to happen after this life and I need to be prepared for it. So let me respond with courage to the difficulty I endure day to day in representing Jesus Christ so that by responding with courage to whatever the difficulty is that comes, whatever the physical difficulty, whatever the persecution, whatever the, whatever the demeaningness of the world that it brings on me because I am a follower of Jesus Christ, let me endure it and face it with boldness and courage because when I do so, I am preparing myself for the judgment of my works that will take place on the other side of this life. You guys with me? So those three things. Friends, I want you to be deeply encouraged. That's been my hope. All week long I was praying. I was so excited to get to declare these things to you because I hope that you will see with me how rich a reward is waiting for you. A resurrection body that will never wear out is yours in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but you will spend eternity in the very presence of the Most High. The presence of the one that I hope you spend a whole life learning to treasure and adore. And when you die, you will be released to be in his presence, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And then finally, to know that there will be a judgment of our works. What we have done, what you do in this life really matters. It really matters. So spend your time and your talent and your treasure well. Give your money away for the sake of the gospel. Spend your time for the things of God. Follow him. It's worth it. Follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, the truth that is in this text. And we pray 
Lord, as I do so often, just recognize we have finite minds and, and this is so profound, this truth. It's, it's beyond us. And yet I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would instruct us and teach us and cause us to be able to see what we perhaps don't have capacity within ourselves to see what is true, what is eternal. We thank you for these truths. We pray that they would be uh, stored down deep in us. I pray that for my people, Lord, that it be stored down deep in them and cause them to have great hope and cause them to persevere in the midst of great difficulty. Lord, we love you. We love your word. As we sing now in response to you, just to kind of close our time, Holy Spirit, we pray that you continue to do your work in us. We're open to all that you have for us, all you want to say to us. We want to receive it. So keep our hearts open to you, Lord Jesus. And receive this song as a response to your goodness. You've loved us first, and we want to love you in response. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.